Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's bi-weekly podcast. I'm here with Fine Woodworking Creative Director Mike Pekovich. Howdy. Special Projects Editor Matt Kenny. Howdy, y'all. And the pride of Binghamton, New York, Jeff Rose. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff. I'm Are your you... host, Ben Strano. The funny thing is Jeff's not even from Binghamton. Yeah, he is. They're just really proud of him there. He is from Binghamton. <laughs> I actually, we They're drove through his anybody. hometown one time yeah. and had Okay, some... that's, that's how you know that. All right. What, what do we eat there? Lamb... Speedies. 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 Yeah. Speedies and Binghamton. Yep. It was an experience, all right. All right. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shoptalkattaunton.com. You can use the voice memo app on your phone and email us a 30-second audio recording. Or if you're old school, you can leave a voicemail by calling 203-304-3456. Any links or articles we mention will be on this episode's show notes page, which can be found at shoptalklive.com. Lastly, if you are watching on YouTube, please have some faith in us and preemptively click that thumbs up button. All right. You're saying like click the thumbs up before they even watch it? Yeah. Like uh, that's a bold move. <laughs> desperate times call for desperate measures. All right. <laughs> can you unclick it afterwards or I don't Yes, yeah, you can change any, it. Don't get any ideas over there, camera guy. Um let's see. So I want to talk to you guys about drill presses. What up? I have discovered that that is the machine that I miss the most. I have a bandsaw, table saw, eventually. I mean, I have it. It's just not in the shop yet. And it's, it might not make it to the shop, but a drill press is the one thing that it's like, no, I can't live without this. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about it too much, but maybe after the bandsaw, drill press. And no one ever talks about drill presses. That's because they're boring. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're borers <laughs> they're boring <laughs> come on now okay. um yeah drill press is really important i uh am glad i have one i have a nice floor standing model uh drill press with a nice big cast iron table with uh dovetail ways in it and th- so you can put a fence on it it's pretty awesome new or old it's newish yeah. i bought it a couple of years ago do you yeah. like it I do like it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I, it was only like $300. I mean, to get a, you know, usually like really good drill presses. Yeah. You're talking about a thousand dollars or more. Yeah. Like the, 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 the range on them is crazy. The Paramatic we have in the shop, it's like 220. It's got the little speed adjust in the front. That's really nice. But for the most part, I hate new drill presses. Like in the range I can afford, mm-hmm. just the fit and finish the way they work. I just don't like them. And yeah. I, I think that's the one thing you can still find an older drill press for really good value because they made tons and tons of them. They're not necessarily a woodworking tool. They're like a machinist tool. So mm-hmm. they're like out there all over the place. And a lot of times in assembly lines, you would have like – especially like the tabletop drill presses, like the old Walker Turner style. Um, they would have like tables of those things set up. So they're pretty easy to find. They're still not cheap. Like a couple hundred bucks, yeah. Yeah. I want like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm just poor. But the, the funny thing is, is like how few drill presses are actually made for woodworkers. Like even woodworking tool companies that sell drill presses, they're often just, it's just a, it's a the, machinist tool. Like the tables are small. Yeah. They're not really set up for woodworking. No. Just get a like auxiliary table yeah, on there, bolt it on there, yeah. big old plywood There are thing. some. But I mean, that's, that that's have, like that are designed so for easily done. I don't think I would pay an extra $50 for a woodworker's yeah. drill press as opposed to. Plus it was a cast iron table and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 50 bucks. I don't well, care. I'm going to mm. put a, a wooden sacrificial table over it anyways. Yeah. All right. I, I, I hope the listeners heard that smirk. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I would want different in a drill press is instead of having to change the speeds by moving belts, if there was some kind of, you know, like I could do it with a dial or something. Yeah. Like but, the one in the shop. Right. A knob. I never change the speed I, on the one in the shop. It's always at like 800 or whatever. And at one time I walked in there, somebody turned it up. I was like, what is going on? Yeah, but, you know, like especially with a, like a Brad Point bit, a small Brad Point bit, it cuts a lot cleaner if, Does it's, it? if it's spinning fast. And, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then you need to slow it down for big uh, Forstner bits. Yeah. 
So changing the speed is helpful. It's a pain in the neck to do it. So I do at home. I try to find that sweet spot, you know, <laughs> that speed that kind of handles everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My belts have not been changed in five years, probably. Yeah. So just, you just leave it on a slow setting and yeah. Yeah. But you're right. If you kick it up for the skinny little teeny tiny bits, it's a probably lot cleaner. Probably okay. a good thing. I just mm-hmm. go really slow feed rate. <laughs> <laughs> like one-eighth of an inch every two minutes. Yes. <laughs> I, had, I had never known that they're going to cut cleaner at a higher speed. But, um, I mean, I I've, I keep the one in the shop at the low speed just because normally I'm using larger four-string bits or things like that. It's right. just, just leave it there and it's fine. Yeah, but there's no like buyer's guides out there for drill presses or anything like that. I mean, we have like we have a drill press shootout, but like, what are you looking for in a drill press? They're all, they're all the same. They're all the same. They're all the same. Wow. Got a depth stop. One there's thing, good depth stops thing, and bad depth stops. One thing, yes. yeah. One thing I do like is I like a spindle lock, meaning yes, yeah. By that I mean you can bring the bit all the way down and then like. I have a knob in the front of my drill press where I hit that and the bit stays down. Yeah. And that lets me set up my fences and alignment and that kind of stuff a little bit easier. Isn't it actually called a quill lock? Yeah. I knew spindle lock was wrong. That's like on the router where you keep the yeah. the thing from spinning. It's a quill lock. Quill lock. <laughs> <laughs> getting dirty. <in> there. <laughs> um, Chris Gochner's got the foot lever. Yes. That seems awesome, but yeah, I've never seen one of those available used. Yeah, that way you can hold the workpiece with two hands and lower the quill with your foot. I've seen those on hollow quill again. Quill. Old hollow chisel mortisers will have like the foot pedal thing. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it is time for another lightning round. Yeah. The inbox is too full. It's time to purge. Time to answer some questions. Cool. You guys ready? Yep. Sure. All right. We're going to try and get 14 out again. So we, we should get little buzzers like I Family about, Feud. Yeah. Like Jeff, Jeff should put a timer up or something. Well, and then we need little electronic like score boards. And That's right. Underneath each of our faces, whether it's a right or wrong answer. <laughs> no whammy, no whammy, no whammy, no whammy. <laughs> that show. Oh, my God. All right. Question number one. I recently moved to South Carolina from Ohio. I know Matt Kenny spent some time in South Carolina, and I'm wondering if he has any advice de- for dealing with the humid conditions during the summer months from Dave. Vermont? My, my, yeah, Vermont. <laughs> moved to Vermont. My first thought is, why would you move to South Carolina? But my second thought was, oh, you lived in Ohio. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's so we have <laughs> alienated... One twenty fifth of the country. Yeah. Um, Next question. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's kind of only one way to deal with the humidity is you've got to condition the space. I assume we're talking about a shop, right? Um, No, he's talking about South Carolina. I just in general, it's like, yeah, get out of South Carolina. (laughs) Can we do something about the state's humidity levels? Um, Yeah, you just got to condition the space. That's really the only answer. If you're worried about rusting on your tools and things like that, you got to get the humidity out of your shop. And there's the only way to do that is you could use a dehumidifier or you could put in air conditioning. Yeah, keep that sucker running. Yeah. Do, Do either of you have dehumidifiers in your shops? Uh, I don't have one in my shop right now, but I used one in my shop at the rental house I lived in for the last year. Yeah, I, I had a, to. I have an AC in the window that does a decent job. I really want a dehumidifier. They're kind of expensive. They're not cheap to run either. Yeah. No. So it's it's about a dollar or two a day, I think. Yeah. And when I was in Nashville, mm. I mean, probably if I did the math, that would have been cheaper than like the rusty tools I wound up right. with. But I just could not bring myself to run that dehumidifier all the time at our local dump they have the air conditioners and dehumidifiers piled up in the corner that people turn in and they'd like clip the cords off of them so i said forget it i'm getting i took two dehumidifiers from there i put cords on (laughs) and like neither one of them worked so that's why they were at the dump mike i know well you don't know (laughs) our dump is 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 plastered with the big signs that like no scavenging yeah scavenging is stealing it's like you're literally throwing it out (laughs) this is the the last stop yeah um i will say this that uh uh i had my shop in south carolina was an unconditioned uh garage Mm -hmm. 
and uh, I had my nice big walnut tool cabinet in there. Then I moved to Connecticut, and my shop was in an unconditioned garage that was mostly below grade. The moisture problems I had in Connecticut were far worse in in that shop than I had in South Carolina. In fact, the humidity was so much greater that the frame and panel back on the back of that tool cabinet expanded so much that it broke dovetails. Wow. And the doors... Uh, on the front side expanded so much that they would no longer close. Huh. So, yeah. Sounds like poor construction. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, have, have you ever tried those, um, if you, if you have all of your tools in a tool cabinet or something like that, those little things that emit magic bars? <laughs> in college one time, I had a magic bar problem. <laughs> I'm not really sure what that could possibly mean. Magic bars? Yeah, you need to let's yes, yeah. the magic bars that they put in gun cabinets. You can okay. buy them from Lee Valley. Okay. Have yeah. you ever used them? I've not. All right. So we have no good answers for you other than buy dehumidifier. Yeah, I think that's happened. The other half that's, is sort of understand what time of the year you're building. You know, if the if the wood is acclimated to your shop and it's pretty humid, then you know, account for that, or worse than that, if you're building in the winter time and it's really dry, you've got to account for the fact that it's going to expand mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, if the furniture is going to live in South Carolina in the summertime, yeah, it's. Uh, it, um, but saying to air condition your space is a good answer. That's the solution. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the solution. When I was there, the it's the, not the cheap solution. No, all the South Carolina natives that I knew, they would always say. Uh, the only thing separating uh, South Carolina from hell is the screen door <laughs> because of how hot it would get there in the summer. <laughs> it was miserable there in the summer. Oh, my gosh. All right. Let's see. Question number two. I have worked uh, with a ton of maple, red oak, cherry, and various exotics, but nothing prepared me for what white oak did to my chisels. I was making a custom floor register out of white oak, and it murdered my chisels. I am using the new Stanley Sweethearts sharpened with a Mark II at 25 degrees and a secondary bevel at whatever degree the downward-facing detent on the knob is. My favorite yoga position. (laughs) Downward-facing detent. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. Uh, I had the same experience with the Nerex mortising chisel on the same material. Any chance you can Monday morning quarterback me and tell me what I'm doing wrong? Jeremy. Uh, two things. Um, three things. The first is working in white oak. Um, yeah, I think I think 25 degrees for chisels, it's too shallow. Okay. Um, I think overall you don't necessarily need to be there. I um, grind my chisels at 30 and hone at 35. Um, that's better. Number two, whenever I'm working with, with white oak or anytime I'm working with chisels for me, the key is to always be taking really, really thin pairing cuts, whether you're taking them by hand or with a mallet or hammer, uh, which means trying to be strategic about how you're removing the maximum amount of waste you can with something other than a chisel before you pick up a chisel. Because mm-hmm. if you're just taking, if you're sharpened at 35 and you're just taking really thin pairing cuts, maybe like a 30-second slice at a time, those chisels are going to stay sharp forever. I work in white oak primarily, and I probably sharpen my chisels maybe every three or four months. Really? Yeah. And they stay sharp. So, Dang. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would say, yeah, kick up that angle and see if you can figure out ways to just be taking really thin cuts. And um, don't be prying them like cleaning out the bottom of mortises. Don't be trying to scrape things like that. But for the most part, don't be trying to really whack on them and really try to remove tons and tons of material. Number one, it's not compressive. It's not going to help. Number two, just that asymmetric force um, imparted by that bevel on the front and the flat on the back is just forcing that edge to be rolled over if there's any sort of resistance to that cut. So... Go thin, and you're going to stay a lot sharper. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I, I take only th- – you know, I pretty much use my chisels only for pairing, and they stay sharp a long time. Uh, and I will say that the downward shaping detent on an MK2 Veritas guide is 2 degrees. So if you're sharpening at 25, 
your secondary bevel would be 27. If it's the detent in between the uh, the top and, you know, there's one at straight up, there's one straight down. The one in between them is one degree, so it would be 26. Okay. My advice for that feature is just forget it's there and never use it. I was I, – I would break out the instructions, figure out what it was. Next time I sharpen, have to break out the instructions yeah. again. You know, I just couldn't figure out where – I needed to be with it. Yeah. I, it seemed too complicated. The notion that you're supposed to sharpen with a grit and then click it and kick it up for the, for the second or the third grit, um, I think that's counterproductive in the long run. Set it for whatever setting. Use some sort of a setup guide um, to set your angle. Go through all your grits at that same angle. And you disagree because you actually use it, right? I do not disagree because uh, I... Well, if I when I once I have gone, if like if I had to reestablish the primary bevel, I'll do that at twenty five degrees and do that with whatever you know. If I'm doing it on with sandpaper and granite, that however, when it comes time to hone, I'll do it all at the same angle, which will normally be twenty would be twenty seven degrees. For, okay. for example, okay. So you'll reset that just by the little clicky yeah. guy, set it up to the same stop. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, same same difference. You're doing all of your honing at the same angle. Yes, yeah. yep. all my honing at the same angle. All right, question number three. What do, you do, what do you prefer to put under the feet of your furniture projects to keep them from skidding around? I made Christian Bexford's shaker step stool from issue 266, and it will be used in our bathroom, but the walnut feet slide all over the porcelain tile. Obviously not a great situation for kids on step stools. I'm considering using some polyurethane glue to apply some thin pieces of rubber under the feet and chamfering them so they're not too visible. And I didn't copy and paste his name. Sorry. Uh, well, rubber would work. So would probably leather would slow it down yeah, a little right. bit. Um, I also yeah. wonder if he put finish on the bottom of the step stools because if he put finish on it, that would make it slipperier, mm. wouldn't it? So maybe don't put finish on. and Not wax. Yeah, don't wax it. <laughs> I usually use like the kind of adhesive-backed um, little felt pad stuff you get at mm-hmm. Home Depot, either in the little round things or squares, or I like the whole sheets that yes. I can cut down to size. Yeah. And some of those, a lot of them, it's like a really heavy, compressed like felt. A lot of those are not slippery. Like I, I like putting the slippery ones on a heavier piece of furniture so you can just kind of drag it around. But I used like the wrong kind. It wasn't rubber. It was still sort of like a felty material. It was obviously designed not to slide because then I tried to slide that sideboard around and it wouldn't move at all. So um, I would go that route. Um, some sort of, you know, the self-adhesive stuff. I don't know if you can, you can probably get sort of rubber hard. Lee Valley rubber. sells the sheets of the high friction Foam rubber. Oh, cool! Yeah, like like bench cookie material or whatever. Right. They sell that by the sheet, there and that go. works really well. I actually had a couch. It was a, it was a sectional couch that would just explode when you yes when you sat on it, and uh, I put that on the feet, oh. and that worked really well. The only um, problem is if it's too grippy, and you go to just like slide the stool over with your foot, just you're just <laughs> always just going to tip the thing over. Yeah, but oh well. Um, cork would work well. Yeah, cork would oh, cork. There's, yes. yeah. uh, on the Boggs chair I made, we did um, leather hide glued to the bottom. I don't think that that would necessarily help for friction purposes. Mm. That was more to not damage any floors or anything like that. But I recently got, I'm getting ready to do a video um, of one of our workshop tips in the new issue. And I recently got these little bumpers from Rockler that uh, I'll put a link in the, in, in the show notes. They're um, just little rubber bumpers, but they don't, adhe- they don't adhere on or anything like that. They actually, you have to drill like oh, right. three sixteenths hole and they have a stem that goes in there. Right. The thing that I like about that is it's less likely to come off when you push it, when, yeah. when you slide it. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of those adhesive bumpers just come flying off and yeah. then all of a sudden you've got three out of four without a bumper on them. So. Can you say bumper one more time? Bumper. Baby bucky bumper. Huh? <laughs> On chairs, I do tend to use, like you said, it's like the round, uh, it's like the little metal round thing with the felt sh- shoved into it and a little like a nail thing on the back. They scare me. 
because when the felt wears out. Oh, I know. It's the ultimate scraping tool. Yes. <laughs> it saves your floor until it destroys yes. your floor. It's I've, known as the floor gouge. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I put all those like little felt pads on all of the chairs in my new house because uh, I didn't want to scratch up the floors. Yeah. I wanted them to slide easy. For chairs, yeah. Step yeah. stool, no. No, but they, he could just like, you could just put some nails on the bottom and then just you know just like just push it, you know. You know? Or improve your improve the balance of the kids. You yeah, know? yeah. It's a it's a kind of kick it when they're on it and say see if you it's can, a skill. It's like a it's like a karate kid Don't, learning we, moment. We do not endorse kicking your kids while they're on the stool. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't say kick the kids. Oh, I kick okay, the stool. <laughs> All right. I think we should move on to question yeah. number four. Right there. Let's let's sort of work on the lightning portion of this. <laughs> Uh, what types of wood are your favorite to make a bench out of? Also, when laminating the bench top, what thickness board should I use? I can get anything from four quarter to twelve quarter from my hardwood dealer. It seems to me that eight quarter or larger would save on milling and gluing time. But are there downsides to using thicker stock from Lauren? Well, the best wood for seating, of course, is cherry. <laughs> oh, jeez! Please don't start this. <laughs> I'm just saying. So for seating, Mike thinks he's, yeah, it's for cherry. So it's a joke. Okay, well it's a workbench. It's <laughs> oh. <laughs> a bench. Okay. Uh, use something. I prefer something light colored. So maple, ash, beech. Hmm. Uh, so that because the, why, why light colored? Just for good photography reasons? No. Be, well, one, it reflects light well. So you get, in a sense, more light where you're working. Uh, most of the stuff that we work with is dark in color, so it stands out well against the lighter colored bench top. And um, those hardwoods like maple, beech. What about ash? I, didn't I say ash? No. I think he did. Okay. And ash. I wasn't listening. Uh, those are all good woods to use for a bench top. Ash is fine. I would just try to make sure you picked ash with, that didn't have giant pores in it, you know, cause I don't want a bunch of grub getting into the pores. Yeah. Oh, the with like top. grit and stuff like that. Like grit that could transfer to your work. Ooh. Or just whatever, you know, it just, uh, that's why closed pore hardwoods are so popular for benches because like maple is so popular because it's really light colored and the grain, not the grain, but the, the pore structure is so fine. I always thought it was popular because it's hard. Well, that too. I mean, there's multiple reasons. And it's cheap. Cheap, yeah. It's like soft not maple. as cheap as ash, though, because I was thinking ash. is cheap. Yeah. I was, oh. bought some 12-quarter ash, beautiful wide boards for like three-something a board foot. Yeah, so ash would make a perfectly fine bench top. Yeah. I'd use it. Here's a fun fact. Um, in 12 years, every single ash tree in Connecticut will be dead. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's the I've got one board. in my yard right now. Yeah. yeah. I got a dead old ash in my yard, too. I think maybe that's – it might be why it's cheap right now. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of preemptive sawing. Just it's a too really bad. angry lumberjack. If I was really smart um, and had a lot of places to store it, um, don't tell anybody. So don't broadcast this, but I would just be stocking <laughs> up on ash right now. I love it. I actually – well, I didn't mean to stock up on ash, but I went to a, a lumber yard with Matt, and he talked me into buying what I didn't need. <laughs> he was like, that's a great board. You should buy that. I was like, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, you should always buy good lumber if you come across it. Yeah. And you're right. Yeah. It's so nice. I don't want to use it for anything. Yeah. Uh, I go eight quarter. Twelve yeah. quarter, you end up spending more than you probably need to be spending. Mm-hmm. Eight quarter is thick enough to where you're not going to have a million little laminations. Yeah, plus 12 quarters, heavy. Yeah, yeah you're going to be lugging that stuff over machinery and all kinds of business, so it's so, easier. So you're buying eight-quarter plain sawn, yeah. ripping it and flipping it, mm-hmm. right? So you get quarter sawn or riff sawn material that yeah. leaves a stable bench top, right? That's the idea. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Didn't you ask another question in there? That was no. Both. We answered both of them. Yeah. Downsize to thicker stock, uh, only because you're going to start to spend more money. Also, like thicker stock, you're going to start to have more internal stresses developed when you're drawing really thick stuff. So I would just be concerned mm. about mm. that. 
Yeah. You could also make a bench top the way Garrett did, uh, where he made it from every scrap he'd saved for the previous 12 years. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he it's like flat sawn oak, right? Or it was flat sawn, whatever. And it was three layers of. Yeah, vertically stacked up. Yeah, like. But he would offset glue them to create sort of like tongue and groove joints between the three sets of boards. Yeah. 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 <laughs> What's your concern there? Um, I think in concept, it's really like simple and smart, but I think in reality, I think it's difficult to maintain those offsets perfectly and to keep glue out of the corners. I think if I were going to do that, I would probably just glue up my three layers, um, joint and rip the edges flat, and then with the dado blade, cut my tongue and grooves on the edges if I wanted that sort of mechanical lock on it. So your 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 concern isn't necessarily about the material; it's about the process. Yeah, a, a difficult build For as me, opposed it would to be Garrett handled. I mean, Garrett's yeah. Garrett. He handled it, and his bench is beautiful. Yeah. I think for me, I'd try to look for more foolproof way of doing it so i i had always thought that if there was concern about that bench it would be the flat sawn nature of the top and having to flatten oh. it and, and not being quite as stable as quarter sawn but it's more the i don't know with the three layers glued up you're almost you're not quite creating a plywood because you don't have any cross grain members mm-hmm. but i do think that you're splitting up those growth rings to where you may not get any, get the cupping you might from a single thick mm-hmm. wide plain sawn board interesting also, it was a lot of extra glue ops. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of glue. Yeah. A lot of glue. One time I was at Garrett's and he showed me like a pool that he had met turned and it was really pretty. looked like it was ivory. And he goes, guess what that is? And I was like, I don't, I don't it know. It was his pinky bone. It was pinky bone. No, it was camel tooth. And he pulled out this camel tooth that someone had given. And first of all, it was like this, you know, like a foot long because of the root and everything. And it was, yeah. I was like, Imagine that's... the smell. <laughs> Camel tooth. Ouch. All yeah. right. And Let's Matt ends another question. <laughs> this is how we wind up with lightning rounds. As soon as we cringe, we move yeah. on to the next question. I'm working on an altar table for a church out of Quartersawn White Oak. The design that I've drawn includes an apron, but no lower stretcher or rails. Because of this, I was planning to mortise the legs into the top for extra rigidity. I'm asking for, am I asking for trouble both mortising the legs and attaching the aprons? Probably. Probably one or the other. Yeah. Um, uh, you could stick the uh, legs through the top and have a lower stretcher, and that's going to give you okay. room for those legs at the top to expand and contract a little bit and without messing things up with the stretcher. But you have an apron at the top which is really constraining the distance between the legs and you stick the legs to the top, something's going to happen. I don't think you're getting a whole lot of strength by shoving the legs to the top anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You're not. not. Unless it's a really, really thick top, then you probably don't need an apron underneath it. I also think like, I mean, it's, it's, it's an altar for a church. There's, it's not a workbench. Not everything has to be the strongest thing you've ever made. But I, I don't know if it's going to get moved around, et cetera. That's true. I why can't I, I don't know. We haven't. We don't know what it looks like or anything or what the design idea. But you know, the idea behind the design is. But I would actually tend to think I'd want stretchers at the bottom because if it's going to get like slid around and stuff, and uh, those legs can start to you know catch and pull. You know, I would want something at the bottom to keep them to get. You know, to keep them from. Pull, like racking as mm-hmm. you as you slid it around, um, yeah. I, I, but we don't know anything else about the design, so, so for, it's kind of hard to answer the question. For for racking strength, you want those two junctions to be as far apart as possible, right? Yes. Um, racking has to do with combined shoulder height. Yes. So you could have a table with a six-inch apron, or you can have a table with a four-inch apron and then a two-inch stretcher down below to get that same effective. Oh, okay. Or, or you can have what I like to do, um, like on a stand for a kind of a, a case on stand sort of a thing, and I need the stand to be like really bomb-proof and resistant against racking, but I want it to look light. I'll have um, along the front. I'll have a two-inch stretcher 
with a one-inch stretcher below it, and it gives it a really light look, but it still gives me the effective anti-racking of a three-inch wide apron. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of stuff, if you can strategically break that up. But um, so if if he was if he was really concerned about the apron strength, he would probably gain more. And he had let's say a three-inch apron, he would probably gain more strength out of a four four and a half-inch apron than he would mortising the legs into yeah. the top. I think the legs through the top probably aren't – it's not the best way to add rigidity. I think okay. you do it if it looks cool or if it's inherent to design like you know the whole kind of steak furniture thing where mm-hmm. you're shoving sticks through a really thick piece of wood and that becomes your piece of furniture. That's cool. Once you get into aprons and that kind of stuff, um, unless you like the look of the legs coming up through the tabletop, which is cool um, – I don't think you want to take that route to make it stronger. Like if you have the aprons, you like the look of the aprons, but you're worried you're still not getting it. I like Matt's idea of just adding a lower stretcher to help kind of triangulate everything. Okay. Uh, Next question, number six. um, And we kind of hinted at this before, but is there a preferred number of degrees difference between primary and micro bevels? For simplicity, I have been putting a micro bevel of 35 degrees on my chisels after cutting the primary bevel at 30 degrees, simply because that is the next step up on my guide. Is there a best pa- best practice to create a micro bevel of two to three degrees difference from the primary bevel rather than five degrees? We kind of mentioned that before. Matt, you basically go with like a two degree offset. I go with two degree because that's what my honing guide can right. do easily. Yeah. So I don't think it really, I mean. You wouldn't think twice about it if your honing guide you did five degrees easily. No. Yeah. The only thing it matters, I don't think it it makes a difference in terms of performance, but um, the the less the difference between the angles of the two, the wider your honed bevel is going to get sooner. Yeah. So a steeper angle, you know, a five-degree angle, you can get more honings um, before your honed bevel gets too wide and you have to resharpen. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that kind of lower incidence of um, what you call it between one angle or the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the higher, but you don't want to like hone it, grind at twenty and hone at fifty. That would. <laughs> I mean, so anyway, like if if five degrees is easy, do five degrees. If two yeah. degrees is easy, do two degrees. Yeah. It's not so yeah. f- functionally when working wood, though, not sharpening. When working wood, the wood doesn't know that the secondary bevel is two or three degrees. To, it's it's not going to function any different. No, because the the wood has no consciousness. <laughs> So it's definitely not going to Which know. is why we cut it up and throw it out with our right. um, I mean, that, that I don't know if three degrees of difference in a bevel is going to have a practical effect on the chisel's performance. I, okay. I don't know. I'm sure Mike will have an opinion, though. No, I don't. No. Oh. Okay. I have no, no opinion. Yeah. Do what's easiest. The only thing worse than like trying to get a point in while both of you guys are like kind of going on is when you <laughs> both stop and stare at me as I'm talking and I like draw a blank immediately. So. <laughs> All right. Well, this one Mike will have an opinion on. Question number seven Big from, from Mike. The biggest one you can get. The end. <laughs> I read the question. All right. Question number eight. No. Uh, which size shoulder plane would you buy first and why? Matt? I, uh, <laughs> sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, I'll go. Um, I made this mistake of buying a smaller shoulder plane, like um, I think it was a Stanley 62. Is that a number? 65? 62 is a number, Mike. Okay. Um, it's one about maybe three quarters of an inch wide, okay. half inch, you know, a skinny guy, little guy, because the big ones look too intimidating. But um, number one, there's not a lot of mass. Um, number two, if you're trying to uh, true up a tenon, which I normally use them for, you have to take multiple passes across wider tenons. You can go out of square. Um, so I ended up getting the great big Lee Nielsen, I think it's an inch plus, inch and eighth blade or something. Um, which a lot of times is as wide or wider than the tenon I'm working on. So it's like one swipe, boom, done. Also, that mass just drives through the cut really, really smooth. So I, I like it for those 
two reasons. A lot of my students, they, um, they have either bought a small one or want to buy a smaller one. So I'm really happy to let them use my shoulder plane to at least get a sense of what it's all about. We have the medium down at the shop. Right. I don't know. One of the Lees. I don't know. Lee Nielsen Lee. Family, no, it's whatever. a Veritas. It's a Veritas. It's a Veritas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember you or someone on the podcast years ago when I was listening saying that that very thing and thinking, no, that's crazy. I don't, I don't agree. And in the meantime, I didn't have any shoulder planes. But now that I've got time in with the medium, I wish we had the large. It, it's, it just for all the reasons that that you said it's it seems like a large will just about always do will, will do the job more often than the medium would i would say so what do you have uh the first one i bought was a veritas medium shoulder plane i also have the small shoulder plane and the lee nielsen block rabbit plane and when it comes time to do tenons i normally grab like a tenon cheek uh the block rabbit plane so that's, that's, there's your wide guy right there. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's really wide. It takes one pass to do – easily do most tenants in one pass. And you have a standard block plane as well. I have two other block planes in addition to the block rabbit plane. So how often do you use a block rabbit just as a regular block plane and not specifically as a block rabbit plane? Um, pretty much three to four times a day. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? I don't know, Mike's trying to get Socratic on me because uh, I know these tricks. He's trying to lead me into saying it's a worthless plane to have. But see, I know your tricks. I'm not. You see, because it's not. Yeah, worthless but that's never either. stopped Mike from buying a plane <laughs> no. anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I the the block planes I use most often as block planes are my apron plane and my just adjustable mouth block plane. Right. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying whatsoever that the. Block rabbit plane is a useless plane because yeah. you use it quite a bit. I do use it yep. when I when I do ten inch. Yeah, yep. yeah, three to four times a day. You can <laughs> yes. stand by, stand behind yeah. that one. Stand by that one. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I do over at my desk. <laughs> I'm trimming tenons all the time. Question number eight: Are there any techniques for mitigating how dark cherry will turn? No, paint it. <laughs> I was thinking of using a, using an exterior water-based poly with UV inhibitors. Because being ugly is better than being dark. Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> question nine. I mean, we get the, I mean, it's a fairly common question. More so About like with maple. like maple, keeping yeah. it really, really light because mm-hmm. it's going to yellow. Cherry, it's, uh, you know, it's the same thing. Just don't fight it. It's going to get dark. Build a piece with what the wood is ultimately going to look like in mind and let it get to that point as opposed to having that really new, fresh, unoxidized surface be the ideal. And then it's just every shade darker it gets, it's just going to eat at your soul. So Mm -hmm. don't go down that path. If you don't want dark furniture, don't use cherry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not even sure an outdoor UV thing would really work that well you know i mean cherry's just going to get dark that's all there is to it yeah i mean it does i can't maybe i get what he's talking about because eventually cherry gets so dark that you don't see the grain anymore it can get really muddy yes, dark it can yeah and um i don't know i would say i've done some pieces where i'd finish them in like a linseed oil mm-hmm you know, which kind of dries through oxidation and cherry darkens through oxidation. And I always wondered if the linseed oil sort of exacerbated that darkness that, that cherry got. Yeah. Um, I've done other pieces in like a wiping varnish, like a waterlocks, which is a phenolic um, based resin varnish. And the cherry stay, it darkens. It definitely darkens, but it never Doesn't gets it? that really dark, muddy red where it almost looks like it loses that wood. Right. So, so it, maybe, yeah. I agree with that because I've done stuff in just like shellac. Yeah. And just like shellac and it's sitting on the dresser in my bedroom. Yeah. And it doesn't get insanely dark. Yeah. You know? Oh, shell- I think that's a great answer because I've done some little tables in shellac, cherry tables with a shellac finish. Um they look really, really good. I think you're right. And then yeah. for a little extra protection, it just wiped on some varnish on top of the shellac, mm-hmm. which is not going to, you know, interact with the cherry mm-hmm. at all. Oh, I like that. 
Yeah. Yeah, there is an answer. Sure. And keep it out of the sun. Yeah, yeah, don't put it in the sun. We, I mean, our, our dining room table is cherry, and it's not in direct sunlight, and it's still fairly light. Yeah. And there was one time I carved a spoon and set it in the sun for a day <laughs> and then put it on top of the dining room table, which had been made for a year at that point, and it was just 20 shades darker, which is... A, that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not a sequel I want to see. <laughs> Thank you. You came up with one better than I was going. I knew if I waited. <laughs> All right. Question number nine. Uh, the, the previous question was from Chris. Question number nine is from Ken. What are your thoughts on mixing and matching waterstone systems? I've been using a 1,000 grit, 4,000 grit King combo stone followed by an 8,000 grit Shapton glass stone, which provides a nice polish. Would using Shaptons for my lower grits provide noticeably better end results? I would say no. I might switch out that that combo stone for other reasons, but I don't – I mean, if you're getting a nice polish, you're getting a nice polish. That's the end result. What the earlier grits do is – is removed in a sense by the later grits. So uh, it's the, yeah, the, I wouldn't change for that. Those reasons I might change for other reasons. Why would you change? Uh, because uh, uh, what I know of King combo stones is that they, I, I will well, say this. If my combo stone, and I don't know if this is true of his or not, I won't say that it is. If my combo stone was uh, dishing out quickly, mm-hmm. and some water stones will do that. The more mod- the more recently developed made ceramic water stones do not. Mm-hmm. And like the the uh, Norton uh, glass stones, for example, which he's using, do yeah. not. They're very very hard, very flat. very hard, very flat. That's why I would switch yeah. them out. Less flattening. There's uh, the Shapton glass stones. The Shapton glass stones are like the water stones that I have are very hard man-made ceramic water stones, and they do not go out of flat quickly. That's a good point. One thing you can tell, and to Matt's point exactly, so you're going from 1,000 to 4,000 on your Kings, and then you switch over to your Shapton 8,000, and you polish it, and you get like a really hard polish, but it's either in sort of like an arched shape or the corners stay frosty and you can't get a polish there. That meant that you were um, your stones were dishing out and you have a slightly convex surface on the back of your plane or chisel. So when you go to a really hard flat 8,000, um, you can't take that convex out with that. So your corners are going to be frosty. That's one indicator that your coarser stones are not, are not flat. flat or staying flat. Um, mm-hmm. And even with a slightly softer stone... <clears throat> You can moderate that by flattening them before you use them, and then using a larger portion of the portion of the stone as you're honing. Mm-hmm. Um, with a little skill, I think you can probably mitigate most of that. The other thing about uh, mixing and matching stones, and this also goes to Matt's point, is the grits aren't always measured the same way. Like a, yeah, from like one a, brand to the other. Yeah, yeah. like a King 6000 grit stone is a really, really fine polish compared to, you know, it's probably the equivalent of an 8000 Shapton or might even be higher. Um, so it's kind of like if you're going through your stones, you get up to the 8000, you get a really hard polish, but there are some deeper scratches that are left. It meant that your prior stones are probably a little bit too coarse. Yeah, if, if anything, I've, I've found that Shaptons are probably coarser than than the the same number of other grits. Um, there was a time when I had both my diamonds and diamond paste and all that stuff and Shaptons. And I was <laughs> actually spent a whole morning trying to figure out the actual sequence between the two just for kicks. From where to go, what to what to what. Yeah, like, yeah. like, like you know, which the 4,000 grit Shapton was actually closer to the 1,000 grit. Well, you know, I, I don't remember what it was, so don't. Yeah. Don't. Quote me on it, but uh, and I won't record this and broadcast this. But um, it, it's it was very very surprising the discrepancies between grit numbers between different types of stones. Yeah, my having both the Shapton and the Norton, my sense is that the equal grit equivalent grits of Shaptons are actually coarser than the equivalent 
grit Norton. And I've seen some grit-sized charts which confirm that. I've also seen other charts which sort of dispute that. So, yeah, I don't know. I was For me, my test was just I would go on one grit, switch over to another, and see if it got hazier or not. Yeah. I, and I wasn't measuring microns or anything like that. It was just yeah. which one was leaving which, – which one was taking the marks of the previous one off. I don't – <clears throat> if my life ever gets to the point that I'm measuring microns, it's it. Do me in, boys. Okay, Kumiko boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Mike is going to answer the next question while Matt meticulously milk paints our studio buttermilk yellow. Try marigold yellow. Hi, I'm Tom McLaughlin, host of Rough Cut with Fine Woodworking. Sponsored in part by Felder Group and SCM. Season 8 is now airing on PBS and brings unusual, unique design inspiration and easy-to-follow project instruction to woodworkers at every skill level. Check your local listings or visit finewoodworking.tv to watch right now. All right, we're back. Question number 10 is from Don. Can you clarify the differences between Zinsser Bullseye Shellac and the Bullseye Seal Coat, and how to use each? I have used Bullseye Shellac thinned on pine boards with satin sheen polyacrylic top coat so far without problems, but it sounds like I need to switch over to Seal Coat for the last coat before applying the polyacrylic. Not necessarily. Really? Yeah. Um, the main difference is that the Seal Coat, which is why it's called Seal Coat and marketed as a Seal Coat, is it has a wax removed. And that uh, all shellac has a naturally occurring wax. Um, wax does a couple things. It makes the shellac a little less water resistant. It also makes it a little less friendly for applying other finishes on top of it, which shellac is known for. It's really, really good at that. Um, so shellac um, was always sold as a sealer, but it was always rec- recommended against underneath polyurethane finishes that the polyurethane really didn't like the wax in regular shellac and um, it was problematic. So my understanding is they actually took the wax out, came out with seal coats specifically to solve the problem under polyurethane finishes. However, polyacrylic is not a polyurethane. It's an acrylic finish. It's a water-based finish. And if you haven't had any problems with it, you probably won't. Um, I end up, I like using seal coat, um, just as a regular finish. Cause I usually buy blonde de-wax shellac anyway. And the bullseye seal coat is just a really convenient way to buy it. And mm-hmm. I thin it 50, 50 with alcohol. I use that a lot in my shop, although I use uh, flakes in my shop quite a bit. And when I'm teaching, it's always, always, always seal coat just because it's much more convenient for me to bring a bunch and mix up batches as we go. So I think that's probably about it. Yeah, and seal coat is uh, a lighter cut of shellac than the standard. Zinzer, seal coat's right? a one pound, bullseye's two pound, right? Yeah, and theoretically, you want to work with a one pound cut, but I still thin down my seal coat. I think out of the can, it's still too. Yeah, I do that floppy. too because it dries really fast. For, yeah, for little boxes, it's all I really need. Yep. So, uh, in issue number two forty three, Jeff Jewett disagrees with me. I did not make that sound. That was my Matt, what's up? Jeff is a, <laughs> Jeff actually is the expert on this kind of stuff. What so. did Jeff Jewett have to say? Then why are you asking us this question if you had the answer from Jeff Jewett? Well, I'm allowed to go into the archives, <laughs> our vast <laughs> archives in the magazine. You could have done this entire podcast by yourself just reading answers from the magazine. <laughs> hey, we're heading that way. Keep it up. <laughs> um... If he he recommends any water based finish, stick with seal coat, huh. um, or use de-wax shellac flakes. Okay. But he agrees with you about oil based varnishes and nitrocellulose lacquer. It doesn't matter. Huh. That's not what I said though. He said polyacrylic because polyurethane is an oil based varnish. But I thought that's that's what people had problems with. If you're using nitrocellulose lacquer or oil based varnishes other than polyurethane such as water lax or any alkalid alkid oh. i don't know how to say that word varnish you can safely use waxy amber or a three pound cut if you're using oil-based poly or any water-based oh, finish okay. stick with seal coat there you go that's what mike said except that i said 
who cares about polycrylic? <laughs> you shouldn't use it anyway. <laughs> a three-pound cut of shellac that takes approximately three months to dry. Yeah, it's a, it's a month per pound. <laughs> yeah. All right, question you, you number put it 11. On with You're a the one who wants to speed this up. Question number 11. <laughs> I made an outdoor barbecue cabinet last spring out of beach. Unfortunately, I chose to glue up the sliding panel doors that are only an eighth of an inch thick. The doors are bookmatched and look really nice, but they warped and jam as they slide in the track. I've considered pulling them out and making some frame and panel doors on hinges, but I really like the sleek sliding doors that are there now. What can be done? And he had mentioned adding um, ribs, you know, hardwood ribs, cross grain, but he said that the problem is that he only has an eighth of an inch to play with, so I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, I remember reading the entire question uh, before Ben edited it down. Uh, edited the life out of it. Yes. Uh, you could simply screw on something, uh, for, you know, but then you're gonna, you'd have to screw in from the front into and the cleats in the back. It depends how much room they have to bypass each other. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you screw like some mm. cleats horizontal cleats across the front of the outermost door and on back of the the back of the innermost i'm sure that that's going to detract from the appearance in his mind which i would probably agree with well if you did like a like a nice like nickel like to me i'm almost thinking go metal or something make it a an accent um so basically the problem is the the grooves that the door slide in are probably really close together yeah um and the door i mean they're only an eighth of an inch thick so, if you like the sliders, just make some frames. Yeah. Put the panels in the frames. And then, okay, so your your grooves are now in the wrong place. Just uh, cut some stock the length of the opening and rip grooves in there far enough apart to accommodate doors with frames and just screw it down and screw it up to the top of the case, assuming there aren't any internal shelves or partitions that are in mm-hmm. the way of that. I mean, this is going to sound weird but what if what if he doesn't have the room physically for the frames and sliders what if he added a face frame to the existing face frame with room so so made the whole piece thicker he could do that you know but you would want to make the entire cabinet yeah add a face frame to the entire cabinet now if there's drawers and then obviously that's gonna yeah but if it's just doors on the bottom of a Outdoor kitchen or something. Sure, you could do that. And uh, then you could make thicker sliding panels. And that's what I would do. Um, make thicker sliding panels. Because, the yeah, I mean, the reason they warped is because they're eighth of an inch thick. Yeah. I mean, that's not the only reason they warped. But that certainly uh, contributed to them warping and no longer fitting into the grooves. So the other thing you could... Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways to uh, have approached this at the, from the start that would have mitigated the warpage. And, uh, and all of those ships have sailed. Y- yes. The um, harbor is empty. But one thing you could do is add a frame to it and have that frame also be an eighth of an inch thick. And just so that, you know, but I, then I'm just not sure that would even that would prevent the the... No, so you have a half-inch thick frame, and on the front door, you basically rabbit the leading edge of the frame, mm-hmm. so it's the the tab is flush at the back, yes. and on the inside door, you rabbit the inside face of the frame, so the tab is flush to the front. Yes. So then you still have your clearance, but a little bit thicker frame. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. You'll still need some clearance on the inside, you know, hopefully as long as shelves or partitions don't come all the way up to those grooves. If they do, maybe you can cut those back a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris, let us know what you wound up doing because you sent this months ago, probably. He's already done. It <laughs> yeah. looks awesome, and it's he completely moved. different than what we said. <laughs> he went out and bought something from Ikea. He was like, these jerks. All right, uh, question number 12 is, again, from another Chris. My question is about Gregory Paulini's Arts and Crafts Coffee Table Video Workshop. Episode 4 focuses on the shelf with large with a large through tenon into a cross-grain bottom rail. He mentions to allow for wood movement, but the fit seems snug all around. Is he able to get away with the snug fit because the shelf is quarter sawn? Well, could we go back to the previous picture? Yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of pictures here. One, the tenon is not the full length of the shelf. So the wood movement, I don't... I don't remember, but I mean, Mike, would the wood movement be accommodated just by the parts that aren't in the tenon? You know, like there's probably 
it looks like maybe four inches on either side of the tenon, three to four inches. So we've got maybe let's let's say uh, it looks like ten a, to twelve inch wide tenon. Yeah, which is there's mm. quite a bit of movement there. But if you left, you know, and also depends when you're building it. Again, if you're building us in the summer, just fit it tight, yeah. call it good, okay. let it shrink in the in the winter. You're fine. So, um, so you you do have to be conscious of it in the winter time. I would do maybe you know, you can do the math, but I would say if I left like maybe kind of a thirty second ish on either side, that's probably enough. Yeah, for quarter sawn for white quarter oak. Sawn white. Okay, yeah. yeah. In the fact that it is quarter sawn, does make it less movement. Yeah. Than now, if it were flat sawn, crazy world. We're building this out of cherry and flat sawn cherry. You're going to leave more than a thirty second of an inch, right? Eh, fat thirty second. Okay, yeah. all right, cool. Because what happens is it's all going sort of a um, across the grain. So even if it like starts to get really really tight, it's not going to break. It's not going to break the tenon. It's not going to break that stretcher. There's no there's no weak points to that. I think the wood eventually it'll just it'll compress in there is what it's going to do. Okay. So I don't think it's. Yeah, you know, if you want to leave a little room, it's hard for me to leave room on the edges of my through tenons that way. Yeah, yeah. It would be hard to do that because no. <laughs> it looks gappy. I do it yeah. naturally. My joiner is gappy just <laughs> naturally. Comes, I'm its talent. All right, question so, number 13. I acquired an old Stanley number three with a thin blade, so I bought a new blade from Hawk Tools. The trouble is the blade is so thick that it completely fills the throat of the plane. I'm debating filing the throat wider. Would you file the throat or would you go back to the old thin blade and just accept that sometimes things don't work out quite as you would like? Well, it sometimes things do not work out quite as you would like, Graham. Yeah. But it's a 50 50. I'd thing. file. I mean, you file it. You, you, are you going to use the plane, right? Yeah. File it. Those old Stanley, super thin Stanley blades. Dime a dozen. Or ugh. if it, if the, <laughs> if the, Blade is in good enough condition. It's not rusted or pitted or used so much that it's too short, and you can get a a good edge on it. Yeah, and especially if it's like a Stanley Sweetheart, um, which is really really good steel and it has a really cool logo on it, and it looks awesome. <laughs> uh, that might be and a the reason truth is coming out. to keep it. I mean, I really, I think the difference between a, a Hawk blade and the thin original blade, as long as you can get them both sharp, it's not drastic performance from a hawk i usually go with a hawk just because blades are beat up and the backs are rounded over they're pitted and i don't want to spend three days trying to get that flat up going and the hawks are thicker and it's all nice and it's all good but yeah it's fairly common that you need to file the open the throat don't be afraid to do that i've got one that i need to file but now granted i don't have the thin blade to go with it yeah i only have a large blade. and here's the advantage of that sorry matt no go ahead okay Thank you. Please. Um, okay, here's a good thing about filing the open the throat with a thicker blade is that through a lot of use, you tend to get a rounding over at the sole just ahead of the throat, which kind of defeats the purpose of having a really tight throat because it's not really holding those fibers down in the wood as you're planing really, really flat. Um, and they can lift up and get tear out. So by opening up the throat, chances are you're removing any round over and you're getting like a really true and accurate mouth where it's really dead flat right up to the opening where the blade comes out. Um, you've improved the performance of your plane by f- defiling it by filing it. So <laughs> I was just going to say that you should file the mouth open and when you've completely screwed it up, throw the plane away and buy a Veritas early notes <laughs> number four. That's what I was. I have a little say. faith in Graham, <laughs> well, or me, because I'm about to do. I'm this. just thinking if I were, if I did it, I would completely screw it up. No, you wouldn't. It's metal, so you'd screw it up slowly. No, get <laughs> get your machine a square, draw with line with a sharpie just ahead of the throat, clamp it in the vise with the bottom facing you, and just file until you hit your line. But You're how good. am I going to get my right angle grinder in there? <laughs> And just grind it down. I mean, how am I going to... Question number 14. <laughs> Again, I don't have a name on this one. I am so sorry. I am making a toy box for my grandson. His mom would like a checkerboard inlaid into the top. I'd like to use plywood for the top and solid wood squares for the checkerboard. I'm concerned about seasonal wood movement of the solid wood checkerboard. Do you have any advice to alleviate this concern? You should be 
Uh, and yes, I have I have a solution, but I don't. I've given this solution to other people before when talking about checkerboards or chessboards for kids, and they always kind of poo poo it. But it's an awesome solution, and kids I think would love it. But you want me to tell, tell you Please. that? No, yeah, uh, no. Let's just so, leave everyone hanging. Uh, one thing you could do is make it from veneer. You could make it from maybe eighth of an inch thick solid wood, and that would be okay, I think. Anything thicker than that, don't do it because that's not really veneer anymore. You're going to have wood expansion and contraction problems. Uh, I, though, however, would paint it on. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's w- then you could have the kid could pick out the colors and you could make them. It doesn't have to be black and white. It doesn't, you know, it could be any colors you want to. And my son wanted a chessboard and checkerboard. So I just took a piece of plywood put blue tape down all over it, cut out certain, you know, squares. And said, go play with this. And no, well, then I spray painted it and then pulled the tape off. Yeah. And I, we had, it. you know, it did have a bunch of knife marks in it. But, you know, you could be more careful if you were doing it. Uh, you could buy two-inch blue tape and lay down the squares, lay down the grid work and paint it over it and then pull it up. And bam, Bob's your uncle. Kids love that kind of stuff. There you go. Matt is 75 now. <laughs> Bob's your uncle. I actually don't have an Uncle Bob. I do. Do you? Did. Bob's your uncle. Was your uncle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is all cool. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that falls under the category of, a, you know, doing it in a way that's feasible and quick, especially with kids because they don't stay the same age for very long. That if you really set yourself up for a really ambitious task and like four years later you haven't done it yet and they no longer need or want <laughs> what you were planning on making them, yeah. um, then, you know, maybe the, the simpler way is the best way. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of veneer, we did an article, I think Craig Thibodeau did it, like a really, really basic, you know, veneer sort of tape up, gluing down, and he used like a checkerboard as a thing. And it is. It's like, hey, if you want to try it, checkerboards are a really mm-hmm. easy way to go about it. And you have a plywood top anyway, so just add some veneer around it and just have a whole an entire veneer top that you're gluing down. Um, or if you want to go out and say three-eighth inch or, you know, even half-inch thick parts, you know, make your checkerboard, you know, cut your strips, glue them up, cut them apart, glue them back up. So you have a checkerboard and then route a recess into the plywood top. So the whole thing sticks up maybe about an eighth of an inch and just sort of give that little bit of room, a uh, wiggle room to expand and contract. And, um, that's fine. Or you could run a rabbit around the edges of this thicker checkerboard thing and have the recess slightly oversized, but then when you glue the checkerboard down, um, that rabbit um, in that oversized thing is going to give it a chance to expand and contract, but the lip around the top is going to hide any reveal, so you're good to go. Hmm. Got it? I think so. Got it. There's cool. a lot of answers in there. Yeah. Well, I was making this up as I went. <laughs> okay. so. Yeah, because what I guess Mike says, you know, usually the sim- this is probably the simpler solution is the best, and then he proceeded to give several really not simple <laughs> right. solutions. So this is just reinforcing yes. the point, some blue tape, some, some paint, boom, you're done. <laughs> yes. so Matt was done before I even finished describing my technique. So. All right. Um, so we got, we, we got through all 14. Do you guys have any recommendations? I do. I do too. While you guys are thinking of yours. Um, I recommend if anyone's making a, a hand tool holder, any any places to put little small devices or anything like that, it sounds counterintuitive for hand tools, but a domino is the best thing for making places to store your hand tools. So get a domino. Yeah. That's your... There you go. (laughs) That's a very Mike answer. Need hand tools? Get a domino. My recommendation is the next thing that you build, make something small, be methodical about it, and make it as perfect as you possibly can, and learn from that experience. That sounds really nice. That's really cool. Follow that. Um, Okay. Drawn a blank. I had one before Matt said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Well, that's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shoptalkatton.com. Oh, I found, I, I remembered my, I found it in my head. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Go to Harbor Freight. That's and it. That's it. Just go to Harbor Freight. They have the Desteco style hold down clamps. Buy a billion of them and never cannibalize a jig you already made to take the hold down clamps off of that in order to stick it on a new jig. Maybe not a billion, though. 20. Uh, 20. You 20. would. 20. 20. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe just as you need them. And um, they're <laughs> much, much cheaper than the ones you get in a... Um, Less expensive, Mike. A particular... They're cheaper. <laughs> uh, woodworking catalog, not to be mentioned. Um, but the exact same, like, number is stamped on the one at Harbor Freight. No. As is stamped on the... Five times the price one you can buy elsewhere. Really? Yeah. Oh. yeah. Is it a Voldemort woodworking catalog? You can also use the voice memo <laughs> app on your phone and emails the 30. I'm, I'm wondering now if I was looping the theme song under that whole thing. You can also use the voice memo app on your phone and email us a 30 second audio recording, or you can leave a voicemail by calling 203 304 3456. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. And of course, if you're Ted, leave a comment about your website that sells 16,000 woodworking plans. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. Got to chuckle out of that one. little rubber bumpers can you say bumper one more time bumper baby bucky bumper huh